So we're continuing in uh, Paul's discussion of generosities that started at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 8. And this, uh, these two chapters are incredibly important chapters in the New Testament because this is the longest, most involved discourse about generosity and giving that we have. And as a part of our Christian life, it's important for us to give heed to it. And so we were looking last time at the different inducements to generosity. Paul gave the example of the Macedonians, the example of Christ, the preparations they had already made to give a year ago. And so he continues um, on the same vein in verse 16 here, saying, Thanks be to God, who put the same concern for you in the, the heart of Titus, for he welcomed our appeal, and being very diligent, went out to you by his own choice. So what's happening here is that the Corinthian church knew a year before this time that they, there was going to be an opportunity to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And Titus was so into this ministry, wanting to get this going, that he said, hey, Paul, I will go make the journey myself. And, you know, it's not just like catching a plane or taking a train. This is like on foot, or maybe they have a, an animal to help, but probably traveling on foot um, from uh, Jerusalem all the way up um, to, like, the Greece area, taking a ship. This is an arduous journey. And Titus wants to go because he wants to collect to help the saints in Jerusalem. And he says also in verse 18, We've sent with him the brother who's praised among all the churches for his gospel ministry. So he says there's also going to be someone else going along with Titus. Uh, we don't know who it is, but this was a brother praised in the churches. And not only that, but he was also appointed by the churches to accompany us with this gracious gift that we are administering for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. So he's saying there's going to be two guys going. We're going to hear about a third in a second. So there's going to be accountability, right? If you, people were charged to deliver a large sum of money that people had given out of their generosity, you want to make sure it's probably not in the hands of just one person, right? So they're being wise about how they, um, how they take care of the Lord's money. And he says we're taking this precaution so that no one will criticize us about this large sum that we're administering, right? So you can imagine even poor churches are giving very significantly, sacrificially giving. They want to know that there's not one like smooth-talking church leader who's going to commandeer all that money to himself, right? So he's saying, hey, I don't want anyone to criticize us about how we're dealing with this. We're going to have accountability. We're going to take precautions. There's going to be a group of us, people respected in the church, to look after this together. Indeed, verse 21, we're giving careful thought to do what is right not only before the Lord, but also before people. And th that's really interesting. He says, even the morality aside, we want to do what seems to be best practices in our culture, what would make sense for people. And just how we try to practice things in our church, the way we collect offerings, we do ha try to have you know, good internal controls, if you know that in business. Um, so there's accountability. It's not just one person doing everything, because we want to be um, seen as upright and have integrity about how we manage church finances. And he says, there's, we've also sent with him, verse 22, um, our brother. So this is a, a third person going with Titus. We have often tested him in many circumstances and found him to be diligent, and now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. So this is a guy, again, they've approved him. And it's interesting, I think, this choice of word that they say they tested him because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says that deacons should first be tested. Or it says, let them first be proved, and then serve the Lord as deacons. So perhaps this testing is some sort of 
a proof of um, integrity and good management with financial matters. We're not sure what it is, but there seems something particularly, because we know how prone um, financial issues are to cause issues in churches. We've seen leaders embezzling, things like that. Um, even right here, there's practical wisdom on testing people for these sorts of roles, making sure they're diligent and blameless in it. Verse 23, as for Titus, he's my partner and co-worker for you. As for our brothers, they are the messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Uh, here Paul's just given some personal recommendations saying, I know you know me and trust me, but hey, these are good guys. Titus is my co-worker. He's my partner. You can trust him. These other churchmen coming with him, these guys are messengers of the churches. Um, it's actually interesting. The word messengers there is the same word for angels. Uh, they're the angels of the churches. Um, that's why actually some, this is just an aside, but in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, when the letters are written to the angel of the church of Sardis, Laodicea, um, a lot of the older writers especially take that to actually be the pastors of the churches, saying if it could be translated the messengers of the churches, uh, the minister is probably the one bringing the message of the Lord to them. So it might be that uh, John was writing just to the leaders of the churches to pass on instructions. So these men here are the messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ, uh, which is pretty cool that common people like you and I get to be called the glory of Christ. Uh, that's just a really amazing privilege that people that um, advocate on behalf of Jesus get to be seen as his very glory, his glory shining in the world. Therefore, verse 24, show them proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you. So Paul's here being, you know, he's doing, using some nice rhetorical flourishing. Hey, I've already told them that you guys are going to take really good care of them. Therefore, you know, I'm going to look bad if you don't take good care of them. So that's what's going on here. Um, any comments or questions on uh, this section of just kind of these practical instructions? The Bible's not scared to talk about money and taking care of it. So take a look at verse 1. See, I'd say we moved through this pretty quick, okay? A lot faster than last week. Okay, now concerning the ministry to the saints, it is unnecessary for me to write to you. So the ministry to the saints here is referring to this same ministry of the funds coming from the various churches to the poor saints in Jerusalem the saints who've been struck by famine. Um, he says, it's unnecessary for me to write to you. It's, it's already a well-known thing. They know there's a collection coming. Paul's forewarned them. Paul says, I know your eagerness, and I boast about you to the Macedonians, saying, Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Okay, so this is interesting here. So Achaia is the region, and Corinth is the capital of Achaia. Macedonia is also a region with a number of churches, the most prominent we know being the Church of the Philippians. Uh, there was also Berea and Thessalonica. Those were in Macedonia. We don't know about really any of the other churches of Achaia, but, um, well, one is mentioned, but it seems like there was probably a couple around Corinth, but Corinth probably would have been the biggest church, the most well-established, prominent church. And so what's interesting here is if you remember to the previous chapter, at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul is trying to encourage the Corinthians to give based on the generosity of the Macedonians. He said, hey, the Macedonians, even out of their extreme poverty, they gave joyfully. Kind of saying, it's like, hey, if that church can do it, you can too. 
But here, again, because Paul's so smart with how he words things, he flips the script and says, actually, you know what? I didn't just boast about them to you, but I boasted about you to them. I told the Macedonian churches, hey, look, these churches at Corinth are already on board with this giving plan. Uh, even last year, they had a plan to give, and they were excited and zealous about this opportunity. And he said, your zeal stirred them up. So just, I think that's a really cool picture of just mutuality in our churches. We could even think of that on an individual level. That maybe at one point, um, someone's saying to me, they're saying, hey, look at how Andrew was doing this. You should do that. And then you could flip it and be like, hey, Andrew, JC was doing this thing. You should try to do that thing. And uh, just in different ways, we can encourage one another with the gifts and graces God has given us. Sometimes you might see someone excelling at something. And you see maybe how they're caring for their kids or encouraging a discouraged brother. And their zeal encourages you. And maybe at another time, your zeal encourages them. We should all be learning from one another in this sort of community, right? Make sense? You guys with me? I should at least see a couple nods. Let's, let's at least get some nods going. There we go. I like that, Steve. Good nod. So that's what, that's what he's talking about here. I, I just love how Paul's... Um, there's a lot to learn from his persuasive rhetoric. And just another aside, um, even uh, secular scholars consider particularly Paul's letter to Philemon and his defense before Agrippa in Acts, I believe it's 24, as two of the best examples of persuasive classical rhetoric. Just the way Paul phrases things and uh, how he induces Philemon to receive Onesimus and Philemon, how he uh, so smartly pleads his case before Agrippa, um, it's wonderful. Actually, one of my favorite ones is when he's before Agrippa, he says, um, I wish that all men were even as myself as I am. And then it's like he looks down as he's in chains. He goes, goes except for these chains. I just love that. He's like, everyone should be like me, except for the chains. So anyways, Paul's great. Lots to learn. Uh, so verse 3. I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty. And so that you would be ready, just as I said. Again, this is so sneaky of Paul. I should probably use a better word than sneaky. But he's saying, I've been boasting that you guys are going to give a lot. So now if you don't, I'm going to look bad before all these guys in these churches. It's kind of like, have you ever had someone, if they're like fundraising for a walkathon or something, come up and be like, hey, I, I put you down as a pledge for $20. Is that okay with you? And all of a sudden you're stuck because you're like, well, now if I say no, I look like a horrible person. So it's just like, yeah, sure, you could put me down for $20. Um, that's almost what Paul's doing here. But of course, with total integrity for the good of the gospel. Uh, verse, uh, do we look at verse four? Yeah, we'd be put to shame in that situation if you were unprepared when the collection came. Verse five, therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it'll be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. So Paul's saying, I don't want us to all of a sudden show up in your town and be like, hey, where's the money? We want to take it to the Jerusalem saints. And then you look bad because you maybe haven't been putting it aside as you ought. You were unexpected and now you feel like, oh, I'm being guilted into just giving this all of a sudden. But he says, hey, I'm letting you know um, we're told in Acts that they took a collection the first day of the week. Every Sunday they took a collection so that it didn't have to come all at once. And um, that's even just a good thought for giving in general, is that we don't want to be caught um, by surprise or unprepared to give. And 
That's why it's good for us to determine at the beginning of years, like, hey, how much can we give away? Um, how could we push ourselves in this this year and be more intentional in pre-planned giving at regular intervals? And that's why I like, um, we, we do monthly deacons offerings uh, when we do the Lord's Supper. I don't know if we've been doing it lately, but in general, um, that's a good opportunity to be like, hey, we know there's a special offering coming up every month that's particularly meant to care for um, those with particular financial needs, especially in our midst, but even outside, and to just think, hey, how can I be ready to give when the deacon offering comes around? How could, we should be preparing for that ahead of time, considering to give so we're not trying to think it on the spot. He wants it to be ready as a gift, not an extortion. Paul doesn't want, even though he's been persuasive, he doesn't want to try to guilt people into giving, make them feel ashamed, but give them opportunity. <laughs> Okay, verse 6. Uh, any comments or questions on any of that? Anything standing out? I'll take a tea break either way. So. Okay, verse 6. The point is this. Okay, Paul's coming to the nub of the argument here. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. This statement has here almost the effect of a proverb. It's kind of like a New Testament proverb. And its meaning is pretty evident. Uh, if you were a farmer sowing seed, or you even have a little box garden, if you only plant a couple seeds, you're only going to get a couple plants. If you sow in a sparing, a, uh, a ungenerous, a stingy way, you're not going to get much of a harvest. But if you sow bountifully, you're going to more likely reap a bountiful harvest. And this is a principle that, you know, if you invest little into something, you get little return. Or I was thinking, practically in my life, I don't sow, but I always, uh, I think, you know, you can, uh, we were talking last night with some friends having pizza about how if you cook with garlic sparingly, you just don't quite get enough garlic taste. And how when you look at garlic in a recipe, you know, the first thing you should do is at least double it. <laughs> double the garlic, because if you sow sparingly, you are not going to get the taste you want. Um, so that's my cooking advice. Spice up everything, load it up, get the paprika out, get the garlic powder, the onion powder. Because if you, if you want flavor, if you don't want it to be bland, you need to be generous with the seasonings. And if we want to reap the fruit of the joy of giving, I'm in a sense taste the fullness of what the loving generosity in the church looks like, we want to disperse generously. And, you know, maybe we wonder why our lives sometimes, our lives seem constrained or like we're not flourishing. Maybe um, it's actually backfiring off kind of our stinginess and protectiveness of our life, our time, our energy, our money. Um, maybe that's actually killing us inside, and maybe actually giving more and being more generous would actually fill us up even more. Just a thought. And actually, this is, um, I was listening to a, a, a podcast recently talking about sort of the psychology of happiness. And studies, even in a secular environment, have abundantly shown that um, doing acts of generosity and charity, they re release the sort of chemicals in your brains that make you feel good, that make you feel happy. Uh, the endorphins and such like, such like as, that's an old reference for some of you. Uh, it makes you happy giving. And what was also interesting that they learned in this study was there's actually ways to increase this happiness boost from giving. 
And the main ways to do it was by having greater knowledge of and relationship, um, in a sense, an emotional attachment towards the object of giving. Um, lots of companies have figured this out. That's why you know, companies like Compassion or World Vision, they tell you that your money is directly going to a specific child, right? One whose face you can see, one whose needs you can identify with. When really, it just goes into one big pool and they help all the kids that are committed to help. But that being able to identify, here is where my charity is going to, and here is the effects it is having on something I can comprehend, that is really how you help um, increase uh, the joy of giving. And which makes sense in the sense that we want to be giving to people, especially in our church family. That's the first priority in scripture. And if we're taken care of, hopefully we can spread beyond there and give to many different uh, good causes. But having that actual heart connection, that the giving is not just coming, uh, throwing money into the air, but it's um, actually having a caring, loving heart that directs the giving into specific areas. Uh, verse 7. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, so this is like a really, really good reminder for us. I think especially in our circles where it can be so easy to feel guilted into recognizing how much we're failing on so many things. Um, what Paul's saying is that God actually doesn't want your grudge money and God doesn't want your guilt money. Just giving the money does not earn you any spiritual clout in God's eyes. It doesn't increase your spiritual cred. It's actually only when the heart is properly attached to the outward action that it's an act that pleases God and gives us joy. And this applies to all our spiritual duties. God doesn't just want us sitting in the sanctuary, singing along. If our hearts are not actually engaged in it, if we're not worshiping God out of love and joy and faith, it's totally useless. God doesn't need our money, just like he doesn't need our lip service. God wants our hearts. And so giving is effectual and pleasing to God. When it comes, we learn here, it has to come voluntarily and cheerfully. Um, and so if you think, well, I am feeling guilted into give, I don't want to give, therefore I shouldn't give because my heart's not in it. No, the problem is you need to get your heart into it. So whatever need you, work you need to do before the Lord, on your knees in prayer, meditating on these things, you need to seek the Spirit's transformation of your heart to make you desirous of giving. That instead of having to push yourself to give, you have to hold yourself back from giving because it's always your eager desire. God loves a cheerful giver. And yes. Yeah, that, that's a great point. I think it totally applies to all our use of resources, right? So if we just think of really principially money, wealth are just a resource we can use to do things, just like our energy, our, uh, our mental energy, our emotional energy, our physical energy are all resources we have that we can, in a sense, spend. So even though this passage is specifically referencing money, I think the principles would apply across all stewardship categories. Um, even, you know, how do we use our homes? How do we use 
um, our assets, not just our liquid assets, you know? So definitely I think we can apply it there. Because um, like I think it, we would recognize, for a lot of us, time can be the most precious resource. And um, we can be stingy in a whole bunch of ways other than just with money. So I think, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, anyone else? Any other comments, questions? Each person should give as he's decided in his heart. Um, maybe just one practical tip for us here. I remember um, one of my teachers talking about how one of the most important things he learned in his Christian life was to never resist the impulse to pray. So it's like, you know when you're just maybe sitting at the computer or something and you just have that thought, I should pray right now. He said, always take it up because that feeling is going to pass in 10 or 20 seconds and you've missed an opportunity to spend time with the Lord. So act on the prayer impulse immediately. And I would add to that, if you have a generous impulse, act on it. Don't wait and say, oh, you know, um, I'll think about it. Because probably the heart that is being compelled in a generous mode, you can think your way out of it pretty easily. Let the kind of feeling pass. So allow generosity when it does well up in your heart. Allow it to burst forth. Um, and you might think, hey, as spouses, we want to talk about this kind of stuff. One thing you could do is make a uh, predetermination between ourselves to say something like, hey, each of us are always free to give up to this amount in charity without needing to ask the other person, right? So if someone comes and says, hey, I'm fundraising for this, you know that you're allowed to give whatever it is, say $50 or something, without talking to each other. That could just be a practical way to have a, um, a limit decided between yourselves um, to allow us to give more freely and more quickly. I, I think that, that can be a practical help there. And here, now in verse 8, Paul's going to come and he's going to tell us why should we not worry about being overly generous. Um, we think, well, what if I get too into this and I give away too much? Which, for one, is almost never a problem. I'm sure most of us can probably not think of anyone, maybe one person, that actually impoverished themselves by being generous. But he does remind us that God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always, having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. God loves it when we give, and very often, not a guarantee, but at, the more generous we are, God loves to increase our capacity to be generous, to increase our abilities to give, to even increase our wealth so that we can do more good. I think of Ephesians 4 when it says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him work doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. It says the reason thieves need to come back and be productive members of society is so that they can share with others, not just take care of themselves. Interesting. God wants us to work so that we can share with others, not just merely provide for our own needs. And he brings in here an argument from Psalm 112, which is a psalm about the righteous man, um, to remind the Corinthians of even the Old Testament basis for this sort of behavior, where it says... He distributed freely. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Uh, Psalm 112, um, especially if you're a man here, it's written particularly about the righteous man. So, you know, women love Proverbs 31, whatever. For men, you should be often thinking about Psalm 112. It particularly talks about the nature of the righteous man, and we should compare our cultural standards of manliness to what true manliness is from Psalm 112. 
And the righteous man in Psalm 112, he's very much a giving man, a generous man, a merciful man. But the man there is actually a wealthy man. So this requirement for generosity does not mean we have to take vows of poverty, that wealth is bad. Um, the, the increase of wealth actually increases your ability to share and do good. And so even when we think about stewardship, we do want to think about stewardship. That is, not only how can I give right now, but how will I be able to give in the future and give more and actually use my resources wisely to increase my um, ability to give, right? So we don't just want to let things come in and go out immediately. There can be wisdom in seeking to increase our ability to give, to amass wealth in a way that can be wisely stewarded for greater good. His righteousness endures forever. And now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Again, God here wants to increase our seed. He wants to give us greater ability to give and do good. And I think of where Jesus says, um, he, he who's faithful with little will be given much. You know, God wants to test our faithfulness. Are we going to be generous even when we don't have a lot extra? Will our hearts be faithful so that God could potentially entrust us with more? Not that he's required to do so, but he just very well may. And we want to be ready to be faithful with it. You will be enriched in every way, verse 11, for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. So he's saying the point is not just helping out poor people. The point is that this is going to glorify God by making people thank God more. So when they recognize that our giving and generosity is from a heart that's been changed by the gospel, it's on the basis of the bonds of brotherhood the gospel implies, then God gets thanksgiving for our giving, not primarily us. And that glorifies God. For, verse 12, the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many, many expressions of thanks to God. And what's a beautiful way that this is shown in this um, example in scripture is that the Jerusalem church was largely a Jewish church and the Corinthian church was largely a Gentile church. And if we think back to that time, Jews and Gentiles were separated. They did not really like to associate with one another. They did not consider one another in good terms. But when the gospel comes and breaks that down the dividing wall of hostility, a Gentile church in Corinth all of a sudden wants to give out of what they have sacrificially to help a Jewish church in Jerusalem. That would have been unheard of in the ancient world. And in that way, it's shown that this sort of giving, this transaction from Corinth to Jerusalem, could only have been affected by God. It could only have been a work of the gospel. And wouldn't it be great if the same things were said to us, that people in our culture that don't like to support each other, or even giving cross-culturally, that Christians were known as those that didn't consider um, ethnic, religious, racial lines, these things, and were willing to just love people, people made in God's image, and that that was known to be, well, that's what the gospel does. That's what the Christian beliefs do. It tears down barriers between people. Would it be said of us? 
And, you know, maybe a, well, a way to test our hearts in our giving to see if our motives are right, maybe just asking that question, am I giving this because I want to be thanked and praised and seen as generous or because I want God to be thanked for giving help to others? A motive check. We want God to get the thanksgiving primarily for him helping. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everything. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, that is the proof of Christian love and generosity, the Jewish church will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ. Interesting. It doesn't say for your generous giving. They, it doesn't say they glorify God um, only for your generosity and sharing with them, but also for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ. So how is this act of generosity connected to an obedient confession of the gospel of Christ? Well, it's connected by way of cause and effect. A confession of the faith of the gospel, as we saw, not only one tears down barriers between people, but in view of the sacrifice and generosity of Christ, also induces a heart of generosity such that our confession of what the gospel means, which is a confession of God's generosity towards humanity, our obedience to that, our imbibing of that, our being transformed by that, that makes us to be generous. And so when others receive the generosity of sharing, they should recognize that it comes from this is just simply a response to the gospel. If God's been so generous with me, how could I not be generous with others? Like we saw last week, um, 8 verse 9. God made, or Christ the one who was rich, became poor so that through his poverty we might be made rich. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. And so it's interesting, the result of their giving, he says, you know, primarily your reward is in heaven, God will work and bless you as he will, but one cool effect is that in this giving, this church is going to love you more. They're going to see you're acting as true brothers and sisters, and their affections for you as brothers and sisters in Christ will be stirred up, and they're going to pray for you, and that's a generous return of prayer. And, and maybe, you know, maybe you're thinking, well, I actually really don't have much extra financial resources to give. One of the most generous things we can do for other people is to pray for them. And let's not forget how important that is to take time daily to actually intercede and pray for the needs of people we know. Our family, our friends, people in our churches, missionaries. Because that's actually a great generous use of even our time. Our time used in prayer is a way to generously bless other people, even secretly, one that we will never get glory for. Um, the, the prayers are even valuable here. And then Paul ends saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I just want a cool way to cap off this whole discussion of generosity. Paul, he's talking about what they're doing. They're going to pray for you. They're going to receive your gift. And then he just almost has to go back to the heart of it all. And just in an exclamation of praise, but thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Is that Paul can't even talk about generosity with one another 
without talking about God's generosity towards us. Uh, it always leads his mind there. Like it should always lead us there. Every gift we give, every gift we receive should be a reminder to us that we need to give God thanks for the indescribable gift of his son. Uh, the, actual, the, the word for indescribable here means the unspeakable gift or the unutterable gift. It's something that we really can't even put words to. How generous of a gift Jesus was to us. Uh, no, no tongue can fully tell or describe the wonders. Like that, like that one hymn says, um, if we with ink the ocean filled and were the skies of parchment made, were every tree on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, nor though filled from sky to sky. It could never be spoken enough, never be fully understood the generous love of God to us in Christ. And from that heart, we ought to seek to be generous people. And like I said last week, let's not seek to go away from this, these, looking at these two chapters, feeling, again, guilty like, ah, oh, I'm just failing in this. Christ covers all our failures. But what I want us to see is that we should uphold the generosity as such a high value that it's something we are actively, consistently thinking about how we can grow in it. So just as we very frequently think, ah, my Bible reading um, is not where it should be, or my, my prayer life is not quite what I want. I want to keep working on it. I want to keep pursuing growing here. So also we should be continually thinking, ah, I want to I be more generous. I want to be looking for more opportunities to give. I want to feel more open-hearted with this. And hopefully we can, you know, we can grow one inch this year, and another one the next, and be a little more generous, and um, just continue this process of slow sanctification seeking to mirror the generosity of God. And we, we, have, a, we have five minutes for any, any discussion or any ideas you guys have, because um, uh, I'm done here. So and any, anyone have anything to add just as we've discussed generosity or practical tips or questions from anything? Good. And so I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I think that's a really good thing you bring up. I think um, the only passage that really talks about anonymous giving is in the Sermon on the Mount where Christ is saying, don't let your left hand know what the right is doing. Um, and so give in secret. And it seems that what's very particularly in view there is the Pharisees who would parade their giving for the heart motive of being seen by people and being praised as a giver. Um, I don't think we can extrapolate from that a principle that anonymous giving is more spiritual or better. I think the point of that passage is to give us a heart check to say, am I doing this to be seen by people, to be praised? Um, I think even in our passage here, um, Paul is quick to point out specific churches that gave um, significant amounts. Like, that's not even anonymous there. Um, we're told in the Old Testament, specific people who donated items to the temple. Um, there's talk in the New Testament of specifically named people who donated to the church, who sold what they had. And so I think um, an anonymity is no requirement or necessity, I wouldn't say. Um, I actually think for myself, and this maybe isn't for everyone, but I actually, in some ways, would find anonymous giving um, almost easier. Like, if, say, if I've noticed someone's in need, I'm like, I would rather not talk to them and be like, hey, I'd like to actually help you out here. Because, um, like, oh, that might be an awkward situation. They'll think, oh, you think I'm needy? And then they'll think I'm, like, trying to parade my giving. So in some ways, we can actually avoid the relationship that comes by giving through anonymity. Um, and also interesting, I was actually just listening this week to a podcast talking about this subject. Um, in a secular realm where um, some famous actor, someone had donated money and got like a building named after them, like you mentioned. And he was questioned, why would you do that? And he said, the reason I put my name on it is because I want other people in my circles to see that this is something I'm about and hopefully they will be encouraged to get behind it because they know, oh, people of this ilk and in this field of work want to actually give significantly to these sorts of foundations. And it can be an inducement. Um, but I think maybe one caution there for us might just be the thought of, um, like Proverbs says, let another praise you and not your own mouth. So I don't want to go around saying, hey, look how much I gave. I don't think we have to keep it secret. But um, I think if we can praise other people for their generosity and lift them up, I do think that would be an encouragement um, by each other's example to give. So anyways, that, that's, a, that's my question. Uh, anyone have anything else to add to that or any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, and that builds relationship between the two of you, right? It's an opportunity to connect and go deeper. So, um, Do we have a, a last comment or question? Because or, we need to close down. Awesome. Okay, why don't we close in prayer together? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've brought us into a family, which is the body of Christ. And we ask, Lord, that we will have a true familial love for one another that we will see even believers on the other side of the globe, of different, of total different people groups, uh, to be such brothers and sisters to us that we would um, want to support and take care for them, even like we would our own family. Lord, we recognize we have so far to go in having this kind of generous love um, for the family of God. And so we just ask that you will increase our love, that your Holy Spirit will help us see our unity in Christ. 
Help us to have hearts of compassion and mercy that reflect your heart of compassion and mercy. And that we will seek to um, increase and work hard and steward the resources you've given us that we might be a sharing, generous people. Lord, we ask that that would be the culture of this church, that we would not be a hoarding culture or a stingy culture, but be known as a generous culture. People generous with our time, generous with our energy, generous with our resources and giftings. Lord, would you work that in us and help us to see your rich blessings that come to those that follow you in this way of righteousness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.